Welcome to the Grace City Church Podcast, where we believe that Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to others, and to make us reconcilers. We're so glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're watching, God is doing transforming work in you through this message. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Pastor Raven Howard, and um, I'm excited to be able to serve uh, through preaching this morning. Um, My family, um, my wife Ellen Hudson's right here, um, and I have been um, a part of Grace City since we've been in Charleston, which has been about five years. Um, And since we moved here, we had two kids. Uh, We have Hamer, who is uh, three, uh, who's our oldest, and then Forrest, who's snuggling his mom um, at the bottom. And um, it's been really cool for me because I, I didn't grow up going to church and, and actually never even stepped in a church building until I was 17 years old. So it's really special for me as a father um, to see our boys grow up in the church, being surrounded by the family of God and being able to participate um, in that. Now, I said this in the last service, and I do want to... Um, encourage you that if you see our, our two boys doing something kind of crazy in the church um, after service or in Kid City, um, then I would invite you to stop them and, <laughs> and ask them, hey, did your dad say that you could do that? Um, not that anything has ever happened. It's just like a hypothetical statement. But, you know, boys, boys at this age are a little wild. So um, I would appreciate that. Um, it's also Family Worship Sunday, so I wanted to give a warm welcome to our elementary school members, and we have a few keywords um, for you to be aware of and, and think about today. So we got systems, chiasm, and new. So we take vocabulary seriously here at Grace City Church. Um, So yeah, so I'm excited to get to open up our time together, um, and I'm first just going to start by praying. Let's pray together. God, we thank you just for that song, Lord, that you are faithful and that you are good. We thank you for all of the stories represented by all the people in this room and for how you've revealed yourself to us and how you've made us into um, a people. We're not just in here all individually. We're here collectively as your people um, and as your bride, the church. Um, I pray that um, I today, this morning, as the messenger, would not get in the way of the message and that you would give us ears to hear your voice, that we would look for you and that we would take hold of what you would have us um, have this morning. Amen. So there's a term that has become sort of popular in the business world called systems thinking. And systems thinking is like a framework to help solve problems. And what it defines a system as is is several parts that work together to make a whole to produce a result. And uh, an example of this would be a car. So the car that you drive, um, or if you ride the bus or something like that, it is built out of systems. And all of those systems work together to produce something that makes the car move. I honestly don't really know how cars work. They're actually more complicated than you would think. Um, but I, um, when I have an issue with my car and it's making a funny noise, if I go to a mechanic, a good mechanic is not just going to make the noise go away. They're not just going to um, cause that to leave. They're going to think about the system in the car and, and what might be broken in the system. How does this connect to the other systems? And how can we fix this so the whole system can be restored? And if you think about it, we actually live in a world that is full of systems. 
If you think about it in that way, we have an education system, we have a healthcare system, we have a bus system, and um, I think you can also see in how God created the natural world that he's created systems. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. And we see that in how he's ordered the world, how we have systems of, of sunrises and sunsets, of um, the moon and the tides, of plants and photosynthesis. So if we think about it, there are a lot of systems around us. However, we don't often think about ourselves in the context of systems. Um, it's probably familiar language to talk about how systems are broken and how there's problems with systems that we experience around us. But we don't often realize that we ourselves create systems. We have systems uh, for how we decide uh, what to eat for dinner at night, for how we decide what to do with our free time, for how we interact with our friends. Not saying they're all great systems, but there are systems there. And um, most importantly though, and what we'll get into this morning is we have systems for how we relate to God and how we experience him. And in our text this morning, Jesus is going to, um, we're gonna see how Jesus interacts with the systems around him and how he wants to relate and interact to us in our own systems. So we're gonna jump in to our text, um, starting in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting but yours are not. So the definition of fasting is not eating food. And um, we have a, a handful of different groups already in this first verse. We have John's disciples and the Pharisees. We have Jesus' disciples, and then we have some people. So John's disciples and the Pharisees are both fasting, but Jesus' disciples are not fasting. And then we have uh, some people who was actually asking the question. And when, he, uh, when the question fasting is asked here, it's probably not, hey, why don't your disciples ever fast? Why have they never fasted? It's probably saying, why isn't this a regular thing that you do? Because you see the Pharisees fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. We saw last week Pastor Plunk closed with Luke 18, where we have a Pharisee who's praying to God and trying to justify himself by talking about how he fasts uh, twice a week. So fasting was a regular thing for the Pharisees in sort of an unhealthy way that we see in Scripture. And then um, for John the Baptist's disciples, uh, his primary ministry was one of, of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is coming here, is coming near. So they were probably fasting um, from their sin or as a way to prepare themselves for the kingdom of God. So they're, they're both fasting for different reasons. Um, and then we have, um, we have some people who are the ones asking the question. And before we get into um, some more around that, I think we, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that Jesus is not against fasting. Earlier, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and he fasts that whole time. And in Matthew, um, on the Sermon on the Mount, he gives instructions for how to fast. He says, when you fast, don't fast um, like the Pharisees do in order to look like they're fasting so that they can look holy in front of other people, which is ironic in this text because the some people that are asking the question, it's obvious that these two groups are fasting. So they're fasting in a way that's visible to others, which is the opposite of what Jesus 
teaches. But I think w- when we think about um, fasting and why Jesus um, might not be fasting or have, have his Pharisees fast regularly, um, we realize something about Jesus that we've seen throughout Mark and we'll continue to see. Jesus doesn't just do things for appearances. He's not concerned with people's view of him uh, being holy or being a certain type of person or Messiah or teacher. He does things because of the purpose behind them. Jesus is intentional. Everything he does has a reason for it. And we'll see that when he responds to the question of the fasting, he's not going to respond based on the action of fasting. He's going to respond based off of the purpose of fasting that we'll get into in a little bit. But before I get into that, I want to pose the question to you. How would you respond if you were Jesus? How would you respond if someone came up to you and said, hey, you know, I was looking around and these people fast weekly. These people fast weekly. How come you don't fast weekly? Um, I probably wouldn't love to be asked that question, you know. If, if, if that was asked to me, I would probably have two responses. One would be sort of tensing up and saying, oh, man, uh, I guess if everyone else is fasting, maybe I should start fasting. Another response might be um, being defensive and saying, well, you know, I have this going on. I do these other things as well. Um, so this is the reason I'm not fasting. But the thing about Jesus and what's different with us is we do things for appearances often. Jesus does things because of the purpose. And I think we don't even really understand how much of what we do is motivated by appearances and and not the purpose. Um, And I think this is a core piece of the systems that we operate in and create for ourselves that we might not even be aware of. Um, So when I was a freshman uh, in college, I was a little bit of a mess. Um, I don't know if you ever feel like you could go back and and talk to your younger self and kind of slap them in the face and tell them that they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. But that's how I felt now because I I thought I was like much more mature than I was in kind of an annoying way. And I I just was very arrogant and um, a little bit of a mess. And I I went to a college... um, that had a lot of Christians around it. There were a ton of ministries. Being a Christian wasn't necessarily like an outsider type awkward thing. There were a lot of Christians that were cool and very relevant socially. And one thing that I did was I got this little pocket Bible and I would put it in my back pocket and I would just walk around with it. And I, th- I thought it was really cool because I'm like, oh, he has a little pocket Bible. He's always got the Bible on him. And honestly, it's not a bad thing. You know, I would grab that instead of my phone sometimes, which is, which is a good habit. And sometimes it would come up in conversation. You know, sometimes I would just read it, you know, off to the side. But when I think about doing that, um, although it wasn't a bad thing to do, I think there was a, if I think deeper, there was a, a piece of it that was motivated by appearances. Hey, if people saw me with a Bible, they would think that he reads his Bible all the time. Or maybe he's more serious about his faith than these other people that are just doing it because there's a lot of other uh, Christians around here. And um, although it may seem silly um, with that example, maybe you think it's, it's dumb to, to do that in the first place, I think about the clothes that we wear. Are, do we wear things because of the purpose or do we wear things because of the brand and, and how it might look to other people and how they might perceive us? I think about um, the types of people that we're around. 
Do we um, hang out with people because we care about them or do we see something in them that we want in ourselves and by being around them, other people will look at us and see that um, in us or, or that's maybe the hope that we have. And I think about the things that we buy. Do we buy things for a purpose or do we buy certain things because they symbolize to other people that we can afford this thing or because I have this thing, people will think a certain way about me. And I think when we get into church stuff and, and church people, this can get really twisted in some, some kind of weird ways. I think about in, in small groups how we talk about um, our brokenness and how we are, are sinful. A lot of times we'll talk about it in ways that are sort of vague. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just really broken or I'm, I'm struggling with this. But we don't tell people how we're broken or what exactly we're struggling with. And um, we want to project uh, a type of person that's really in touch with their brokenness and really self-aware, um, but in reality, we're creating our own systems to hide our own sin and our own brokenness, um, while at the same time, we're acting like we're broken in front of other people. I think about how we make decisions. Uh, the term, God's calling me to this, or I really feel like God is leading me in this way. Not that that's a bad term, if God is really leading to that, that's what you should do. But I think sometimes we use language like that so people don't question us. So people don't say, are you sure? Because that doesn't seem like a good thing for you. Um, and I think we can be, we can use language that makes it seem like we've, we've really discerned and done the work of bringing it to God without actually putting the decision in front of Jesus and saying, hey, do what you will with this or lead me to the way that I should go. We don't bring decisions before they happen to our community so that they can say, hey, I, you know, with realizing that we all have blind spots and things that we don't see, we don't invite community in it for their prayers or their thoughts or their considerations. Instead, we'll talk in a way that makes it sound like we're just following wherever God is, but in reality, we're just doing what we want to do and packaging it in a way that looks good in front of other people. Also think about giving and how we uh, approach people that are needy. We can do that in a way um, that makes us look good, or are we actually thinking about the person? Do we see them um, as someone that, that bears the image of God? Now, let's jump into how Jesus answers the question in verse 19. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so as long as they have him with them. So probably not the answer that you, you would expect, or that's probably not how you would answer the question. Um, but this answer is, is really interesting. So Jesus is talking about weddings. To, to give you some context, a Jewish wedding was, was typically seven days. They took their celebration very seriously. There was singing, there was dancing, there was feasting. It was um, a good time. And the one thing that would be just utterly inappropriate and disrespectful at that time would be fasting. Uh, a wedding is a time for celebration. It's not a time for fasting. Even the Pharisees probably wouldn't fast um, if they were attending a wedding. So Jesus is not saying that fasting is bad. He's just saying it's not the time for fasting. This is a time of joy and celebration. The time for, for fasting will come, but that's not the time right now. And Jesus refers to himself here as the bridegroom. And 
this is where this, this gets really interesting. So in the Old Testament, um, there was imagery that God used where he, God would call himself the bridegroom and he would call Israel the bride. In Isaiah 54, 5, it says, your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. In the New Testament, um, this image gets transformed to where the bridegroom is Jesus and the bride is the church. So Jesus, in this statement, by calling himself the bridegroom, um, while that, that might not sound like a big deal to you, to the Pharisees, Jesus is claiming to be God. So that would be incredibly offensive to them um, in, in, in this like subtle claim to God that he's making right here. But he's also saying something else. He's saying, the way I will relate to my people is going to be like a husband and a wife. He is, Jesus, by calling himself the bridegroom and inviting people to be a part of his kingdom, it's almost like a proposal. Jesus is inviting us into his family, and he wants us to have that type of relationship um, with him. And if you take a step back, though, so Jesus has this, he's calling himself the bridegroom. He's desiring the intimate relationship with him. But the some people, and, and just to go back to that, so Mark frames the question as ambiguous. So we don't know who exactly is, is asking the question. It could be the Pharisees, it could be the disciples of John. But if we look at this passage in its context, there's likely a tone of accusation in the question. Um, it's probably more like, hey, Jesus, how are you a legit teacher if your disciples don't even fast? Um, so there's, there's definitely a tone of challenge that's there if we look at it in the context. But let's take a step back. So we have Jesus, the bridegroom of Israel, who is God himself in front of these people. And, and he's saying, hey, this is a wedding. This is a time of celebration. I'm inviting you into this relationship with me that's going to be far more beautiful than anything you can imagine. But the system that the people are coming to him in is so devoted to God, and they're a part of this rigorous, devout system um, that includes fasting, that they're not even realizing that God is right in front of them. In church, this morning, I just want you to realize in this story, we have these people a part of this system, and they're talking to God, and they don't even realize that God is right in front of them. And I think about, I think about us in, in, in our systems. Um, the purpose um, of fasting was to uh, depend on God. But the way that they were fasting was failing them if they're not seeing God right in front of them. And if we are participating in a system or creating systems that don't lead us to the foot of Jesus, then they're utterly useless and they're leading us to destruction. And I want you to think a little bit about what is, what's your system? How, what is the design of your system? So we see, we see the, the folks in here fasting. The, the design of their system was good. It was supposed to get them to God. Um, but along the way, they, it got twisted in a way that started to fail them. But is your system even built around God? Is, is everything you do purpose around trying to get yourself to God or to relate to him or to commune to him? Or is your system designed around yourself? Do you do things so people will think a certain way about you or so you'll look a certain way? And is that really the center of what you're doing or is it meant to be God? For many times, I think in the church, 
um, prayer and Bible reading uh, can be this. So we can um, be led to, to scripture and to prayer, not because we want to um, engage with um, the God who created us and rescued us and have communion with him, but because we feel guilty if, 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 we, if we're not doing that, or because we feel like it's a good thing to do and we should do that in the first place. Not that we should not do that, um, but we should take a sobering look about our motivations um, for doing the things in our system. And I think about um, our involvement in church. Um, are you um, serving in church because you want people to view you as a servant? Or are you serving in church because you actually care about the people that you're serving and that God has put right in front of you? Do you view the church as a social network to be able to leverage relationships and other things to your gain? Or do you see yourself as part of a family, a family not identified by our good works, a family that's identified by the fact that the worst things about us are actually true, but we have a God who has came to rescue us and we are knitted together by our dependence on him as a family. So let's get on to verse 20. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. So Jesus, is, he, he introduced himself as the bridegroom, but now he's saying there will be a day where the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And in that day, fasting actually is appropriate. In church, Jesus here is referencing his death and ultimately his ascension. He's not going to be with us in the same way he was um, back then. And this is the time that we live in now. Even though Jesus says he's with us always to the end of the age, and that is true um, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is not with us in the same way he was back then. And we are, live in a world that is marred um, by sin. One day we will be reunited with him, but that day is not today, and fasting actually is appropriate um, in this time. And this is where it can... And this is where fasting can be a beautiful reminder of the aching and the longing for Jesus to come back. When we're fasting and we're um, suffering from not having food, we're reminded of the suffering that Jesus went through and that one day we will be re reunited with him. So why we should never use fasting as a way to justify ourselves before God like the Pharisees did, fasting is a beautiful tool that God gives us to be able to experience him in a much deeper sense. And finally, um, we'll move on to our last two verses. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So my wife's grandmother is like the stereotypical uh, Southern grandma um, in, in the best way. She's, she's like the sweetest person. And when both of our boys were born, she made them birth quilts that had like their name and their birthday. Um, and when she did that, she um, had two pieces of cloth that she had to attach together to make the quilt. But one thing she did was she had to wash them um, before she um, sewed on the stitching. Because if you were to sew on the stitching, Without washing it, uh, the thread would actually shrink the cloth and, and either cause rips or, or singes in the quilt. 
And then in the, um, so, so basically what Jesus is saying is if you have a shirt with a hole in it, and it's, a, and it's an old shirt that's been worn several times, you can't just put a new cloth on the shirt to cover it up because if you wash this shirt, it's going to rip and make the tear worse than it was before. And he's saying the same thing in a different parable about wine and wineskins. He's saying no one would pour um, new wine into old wineskins. So at that time, um, winemaking was actually done in animal skins. So they would take um, animal skins, crush grapes, put the grapes in the animal skins, and through the process of fermentation, the sugar is going to break down to become alcohol. The wine skins would become more fragile, and it would break down the skins. Um, but that process was not meant to be reused. You wouldn't do that again in old wine skins because the wine skins would burst, and the wine would be useless. So what, what is Jesus trying to say um, in these two pictures. He's trying to say that the new thing requires a new container. The old container cannot hold the new thing. This is likely a reference to the old covenant and the messianic expectations um, that the people listening to him had. He, um, in Hebrews 10, it talks about the old covenant being a shadow and Jesus being the reality so now that the reality is here, the shadow isn't needed in the same way. Not that the shadow is bad. There's still value in the old covenant, but it's not needed. Jesus has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the, the really cool thing here about Jesus where he says new wine and new wineskins is if you take that word new and do a quick study of, of where that word is used throughout the New Testament, it's the same word that will be used later to talk about Jesus' new commandment to love one another. It's the same word used to talking about Jesus drinking anew in his Father's kingdom. It's the same word that Paul uses to talk about the new self we are to put on, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's the same word as the new covenant and the new heavens and the new earth that will descend one day. And I think Mark is wanting to get this in a unique way, actually, with how he has structured the passage. So some scholars believe that the structure of this passage is a chiasm. So a chiasm is, and hang with me for a second here, a chiasm is the same word or phrase repeated, but in opposite order. And a chiasm is used to create emphasis with how something is um, said or communicated. So the famous chiasm in the New Testament is whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So exalted is at the beginning and the end, so it highlights the middle, which is humbled, which is the point of the passage, which is humility. So we have a slide for this, and this, um, this passage that we're talking about now is, the, is in the center of what's called the five controversies. So these are five clashes that Jesus has with uh, the Pharisees, and Jesus does something shocking in each passage that kind of totally flips what they believe the kingdom is to be about. So Pastor David, a couple weeks ago, talked about the healing of the paralytic. Last week, Pastor Plonk talked about Jesus eating wrong. He was eating with sinners, which the Pharisees thought that he shouldn't do. This week is the question about fasting, and next week, the next two, we'll talk about 
um, eating wrong. The disciples are eating wrong because they're picking grain on the Sabbath, which is against the, the law at the time. And we'll talk about the healing of the man with a withered hand. So you see at the top and the bottom, there's a healing passage. And then after that, there's eating wrong twice. And then in the middle is the question about fasting. So I tell you this for two reasons. One reason is like, this is just kind of crazy, you know, not something that you would typically pick up. And part of that is um, the way we translate things, but how beautiful it is um, that how God inspired through the Holy Spirit, the writers of the scriptures to have endless mercies, endless revelations of him just hidden throughout all of the scriptures. I think the other piece is that this, this, this passage is highlighted. So what would be the reason that this passage is highlighting or what is the significance of this in the context of the other um, encounters with the Pharisees? Well, I think here we see that Jesus is the bridegroom that has come not to patch on to the old system, but to fulfill and usher in a new system and a new kingdom. And that um, the new kingdom is going to come actually not through power and um, through military governance, which is what the Pharisees were expecting. The new kingdom is going to come through the cross, through the bridegroom being taken away for us and dying and ex being executed by the people that he came to save. Um, but church, I'm, I'm convinced that in a room like this, that there are some of us who have deceived ourselves into thinking that we're Christians when the cost of being a Christian is relatively low in our culture. So we might go to church and do church things or even read our Bible, but in reality, we, we, we might do that on Sunday or particular times a week. We also worship money and career success and the value that we get from work. We worship how people view us and appearances and people's affirmation of who we are and our decisions. And I think we've constructed a reality in which we, we do worship God, but we worship God along with other things together. And we see from this passage that that is not possible. You can't put new wine into old wineskins or they will burst. It's, it's completely useless and futile. And there's a quote from J.C. Ryle, as I start to wrap things up, that I think really helps us um, get this in a beautiful way. He says, we have only to look around us and see. There are thousands who are trying to reconcile the service of Christ and the service of this world. They have the name of Christian and yet live the life of the ungodly. To keep in with the servants of pleasure and sin and yet be the followers of the crucified Christ at the same time. In a word, they are trying to enjoy the new wine and yet cling to the old bottles. They will one day found that they have attempted to do that which cannot be done. And I want to say this in a sobering way, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right now is the only time that we get to choose to bow. One day will we be forced to, and I hope, I hope that we can take a sobering look at the beauty of God and our actually lives and see if we really believe in the one true God, if we really make him our Lord um, of our whole life. Um, our job as we um, process what we've just heard 
is the same for the brand new Christian and those that have been following Christ for decades or those who are, who are considering following him. It's what David says to do in Psalm 139 and what he does in his example. David says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We can be so caught up in appearances and what other people think about us that we can forget about the God who is right in front of us. And we can forget that God is our only um, ultimate judge. And David is saying, God, I want to open myself up to you. I want to open my whole life. I want to open every action, every reaction, every system in my life. And I want you to search me and know me. And I want you to tell me what's offensive to you in it. And that's really the job of all of us this morning is to put our lives at the altar with a posture of surrender, letting the Lord do with him what he will do with him and let him lead us to where he wants us to go. And I can't think too, just, you know, I've been, I've been in the church for, for over 10 years and I think that um, it can just be so easy to forget that God wants to relate to us in a much more intimate way than we can even imagine. We get caught up doing um, Christian things and serving and all of that, and I think that's a beautiful thing. But I think sometimes we have just forgotten our bridegroom. We've forgotten the point of it all. We've got so caught up in the work and the action and the tradition that we miss um, or or that we start to look at the shadow and we're missing the reality um, that's right in front of us. But I think the beautiful thing about this imagery of the bride and the bridegroom is that it points ahead, like in this passage, it's talking about um, them being attendants at a wedding. You would never fast at a wedding. That's a, that's a crazy thing to do. But one day there's going to be another wedding and the church is actually going to be the bride. And that is those of us who have put our hope in Christ. And we're not going to be attendants of the wedding. We're going to be walking down the aisle. And God is, that's the type of life, that's the type of beauty, that's the type of relationship that our God is calling us into this morning. Let's pray. Lord, how manifold are your works? I just think about um, the scriptures and um, just how vast they are, how many things we miss um, when, when we rush through a reading. I thank you for um, the beauty of your gospel, Lord, that we were broken, that we were dead in our sin, that we weren't just bad people, we were dead. We couldn't even move or do anything or pick ourselves up. Yet you came and you didn't just come from afar. You came as a human, as a baby and made yourself vulnerable so that you could live the life that we could not live and then you could die the death that we deserved so that we could have, a, have life and be brought into the fold of God. So I pray that we would not take advantage of that this morning as we live in the South and go um, to maybe go to church often or where church can be really normal. I pray that we would see you, Jesus, that you would see the life that you want us to live. Um, and I pray that you would call us deeper and closer to ourselves and that you would allow us to view ourselves how we actually are, not how we hope to be. I pray all this in your name.
Thank you for listening to the Grace City Church Podcast. Whether this is your first time with us or you find the Lord moving you to engage differently or just learn more about who we are, we encourage you to find us at our website.